Aren't they awesome? They call themselves Shine. They are shining for Jesus. It's a children's choir that comes together every Wednesday night to practice and rehearse songs. And once in a while, we bring them over to the big worship service so that they can worship God with us and also display their talents. Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor David. And so we are continuing our sermon series from the book, the New Testament book of James. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles if you have one to James chapter 2. That's where we will be today. James chapter 2. And we will be looking at the first 13 verses. James chapter 2. And if you are using one of our church Bibles, we call it the blue Bible here at Midland Free. Like looks like this. It's found on page 1289. All right. On the big screen... You will see the word Christian twice. The one on the top has a blank space before it. And the one on the bottom has a blank space after it. And here's the question. What are some words that you could think of when used in conjunction with the word Christian would feel absolutely absurd. It would be incongruent, contradictory, or incompatible with this word Christian. Think about it for some more. In fact, in the English language, such expressions are called oxymorons. They don't make sense. So, obviously, you are thinking about it right now. I have been thinking about it throughout the whole week. So, let me throw out some ideas and see if you agree with them. Some of them you may not, but that's all right. But let's see if you agree with them. Here are some few. How about this? A gay Christian. Second, Christian terrorist. Here's another one. Christian prostitute. Christian bully. Christian mafia. These are the people who are involved in organized crime. Christian sloth. Christian Drunkard. Christian drug cartel. These are the people who are involved in drug, drug trafficking. Do you get the picture? Some of them you may agree, some of them be not. But in my mind, the words that I have underlined and kind of given a different color to it, they do not go with the word Christian. They are incongruent and incompatible, thus producing expressions that are absolutely absurd. Now in James chapter 2, verse 1, we read the word partiality. 
does not go with the word Christian. In other words, there's no such thing as Christian partiality. Christian partiality is an absurdity. It is an oxymoron. That's the case that James is going to make in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So please look with me to verse 1. And he begins by saying, My brothers, it's an affectionate term, being pastoral. Show no partiality as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see that? In other words, to say that is, if you are holding on to the faith in Jesus Christ, don't show partiality. The word Christian and partiality do not go with one another. If you combine the two, it is absurd like anything else that I have shown you previously. Then in verses 2 through 4, James goes, goes on to provide an example. So please look with me to verses 2 through 4. Here he says, just one example that was happening at the time in his church or the churches in which that he had some oversight. So he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. By the way, the word assembly is synagogue. Early Christians actually gathered and called themselves not church but synagogue. Because remember, they came out of the Jewish heritage. Jews met in synagogues. So when the early Christians were gathering, they called their assemblies synagogues. And the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down under my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, many over the years have turned this example into a rich versus poor issue. A church favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor. But I don't see this example, in this example that James provides a, a scenario where about rich or poor, and here are my reasons why. This is not, in my mind, this is not a rich versus poor issue. And show that to you in verses five through seven. So James goes on, James goes on. Listen, my beloved brothers. Again, you see the affectionate term. He's trying to be pastoral, as he was saying very hard things to his congregation. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Honor the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now there's no doubt that one person who came into the church was rich. He says that. He wore a gold ring and fine clothing. By the way, this fine clothing has this connotation of it was shining. 
And the same word was used when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When, he, when, when his clothing shone like anything else. It was amazing. You, could, you cannot miss it. You will notice it. And, and, and that's, that's the kind of clothing that this man was wearing. But in these verses, you also find he also oppressed people. Dragged them into court. And blasphemed the name of Jesus. In other words, he was an unbeliever who oppressed and took advantage of Christians and the poor. You see, there's, there's more to this man who came in than simply being rich. The other one was poor and wore shabby clothes. But it says here, he was chosen by God. He was God's chosen Meaning, a believer who was rich in faith and an heir to God's kingdom. That's why I have concluded that this is not a rich versus poor issue. It could be part of it, but it's not the only thing. Rather, it is about showing partiality, favoritism, or discriminating against someone based on outward appearances instead of inward qualities. The rich man's outward appearance was spectacular. But the Christian church in James' time favored him even though he was internally corrupt. The poor man, on the other hand, was internally spectacular. A believer, God's chosen, rich in faith, an heir to his kingdom. But the Christian church in James' time discriminated against him because he was externally dirty, filthy, and foul-smelling. So here's the question that I have for us to think about. What are some ways by which that we may show partiality today? In our churches, in our society. I thought about a few. There are many more. I have put some life group questions to talk about this. Let me ask some questions. Do we discriminate based on looks? How a person looks? Short or tall? Thin or heavy? And I could go on and on. Do we discriminate based on how people look. Somebody's a sportsman, sportswoman, and the other one is not. Do we discriminate based on race, ethnicity, or skin color? Do we discriminate based on gender, male or female? Do we discriminate people based on age? Young or old. You see, I'm asking these questions because the word Christian does not go with the word partiality. 
It is an oxymoron. It is it's an absurdity. So what I want to do this morning in the sermon is this. I want to present to you three reasons why showing partiality is incompatible with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we dishonor the God's chosen. So again, let's go back to verses 5 through 7. This is what he says. I have underlined some of those for you on the screen. James says, listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Again, remember, I have said already, this is not a rich versus poor issue. There's more. It's based on, in a looks, how they look. In outward focus as opposed to focusing on the inward qualities of a person. So honor the rich, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, in these verses, the Apostle Paul did not pause to explain the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Not here, not in the entire book of James. James. The reason is that he assumed that his readers knew and believed this. So for our purposes this morning, I want to give you a definition and show you a couple of scripture passages to support it. It's a big topic, but I just want to give you a definition and give you a couple of verses to support it. So here is what the, God's sovereign election is all about. Election is, God's, election is God's sovereign, gracious plan before creation to save those who believe not because of any foreseen merit in them, but solely because of his grace and solely for his glory. That's my definition. And here are two scriptures to support this particular definition. The first one is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. It says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Secondly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there are other passages as well. So what happens is this. When we show partiality, we dishonor God's chosen. Remember, this poor man was a believer. He was born again. He was rich in faith. He was an heir to the kingdom of God. And he was discriminated against in this particular church. The original Greek word for dishonor always conveys the meaning that we disgrace and degrade God's chosen. 
So it's not just dishonor. We degrade and disgrace God's chosen. You see, that puts ourselves as judges in place of God. And this obviously spells trouble. Because according to verse 4, we as sinful, sinful human beings judge others with evil thoughts. Moreover, we put ourselves in the place of God. That is, we usurp the role that belongs to God alone who makes sovereign choices. As a result of all of these, we actually end up fighting against God and His sovereign plans. Those are serious charges, right? We put ourselves in God's place. We become judges instead of God. And we become, we meddle with, try to meddle with God's sovereign plans and purposes. Guess who wins? God. Because the Bible says that God does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3 And none of his purposes can be thwarted. Job 42.2 We don't want to fight with God, do we? We don't want to become God's enemies, do we? We don't want to try to mess up his plan, do we? Because in the end, he does what he pleases. And everything, plan, everything he plans come to pass. If you remember what happened to Paul, the apostle Paul, who used to be Saul in the, in the road to Damascus, that's what God said to him. You are kicking against me. It it's just isn't going to work. I want to show you a picture of a missionary that I have known for several years. I was a former missions pastor in my former church. Russ and Donna Reinert, they were missionaries for over 40 years in Peru. As you can see there, Russ is blind. So, God had called Russ, Russ to become a missionary. He was God's chosen to become a missionary. So he applied to be part of... This is not an issue nowadays, perhaps not an issue nowadays, but in those days, in the 1970s, you know, this is a huge issue. He applied to mission agencies, every one of them that he knew, every one of them rejected him. Every one of them. So he was frustrated and he prayed some more and continued to talk with some of those missionary, you know, mission agencies and a few years passed by and finally the Wycliffe Bible translators came back and said that we can accept you. So very excited, you know, finished the application and the training and all of those, and he went to Peru, and there was a missionary, and he served there for 40 years, and he became the head of Wycliffe in Peru. I mean, he's so good. Very sharp. I have sat down and talked with him. I have interviewed him. If you, hear, if you ever hear his story, you would be blown away. But he was responsible for translating the scriptures 
for all the Peruvian tribes that needed their own, the Bible in their own languages. Along the way, he lost his first wife. That's the picture that you saw is his second wife because she was the one guiding him. Because he, he, in other words, she was his eyes to see. And then he married the second one, and it's a fantastic work for 40 years. You see, God accomplishes his purposes. Russ Reinert was God's chosen to be in Peru for 40 years to translate some of the Bibles in the tribal languages. I feel sorry for some of the mission agencies that rejected him at the time. It was partiality based on his disability that he was blind. So partiality is incompatible with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we may end up dishonoring, disgracing, degrading God's chosen and thereby usurping God's sovereignty and fighting against his sovereign plan. That's, that should be terrifying. Second, when we show partiality, we commit sin. Please look with me to verses 8 through 12. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, please hold on to that phrase, the royal law according to the scripture. I will come back to it in a minute. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And here's the verse. But if we show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So let's go back to verse 9. It says, James says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Wow. Have you thought about that? In the original Greek language of the New Testament, the word sin means missing the mark. In this case, missing God's mark or standard. You know, it's, it's, it's not hitting the bullseye every time. It's missing that bullseye. And so it is in that bullseye that God has established his standards his expectations, his requirements of his, of his people, and when we miss that, that is called a sin. Now, let's think about sin for a second. You know, sin, as we know it, separates us from God. It harms us. It harms others. It usually leads to more sin. 
Somebody that begins in, the in, the, in our mind as something, a thought process. When it becomes an action, it leads to more sin and it leads to more sin. For example, if you look at King David, for example, he looked at someone else's wife who was having a shower. And he thought, oh, she looks beautiful. And so she invited and had sex with her. Wife becomes pregnant. And all of a sudden, in order to cover all of those things up, he calls her husband who was in the military, who was fighting in the front lines, and he brought him back and basically gave him, you know, basically made him a drunk, you know, gave him alcohol so that he would go and have sex with his wife and, and he could pretend as if the child was his and not David's. But he refused to do that because his men were fighting and he didn't want to have this pleasure. So what did David do? He ended up killing her husband and took her as his wife. You see, one sin looking went into all other sins. And here's the, and the ultimate and the severest is that sin leads to death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not only the physical death that we experience here on this earth, but also eternal separation from God. A sinful being, unconfessed sins, sent them to hell. So when James says, if you show partiality, you are committing a sin, we should tremble. Because all of that is true. That's what sin does to us. Now, some may object by saying, come on, David, get real. Showing partiality is such a small sin compared to big sins like adultery and murder. In fact, James anticipates that kind of an objection. And to be sure, the Bible does teach that there are degrees of seriousness of sin. Absolutely. Some sins are more damaging than others. However, in the final analysis, sin is a sin. And they are serious in God's sight. Now to prove this point, James calls on a command from the Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. That's where this first appears. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This command is cited six times in the New Testament, including by Jesus himself in the Gospels. And here's where I want to go back to the phrase that I kind of ask you to remember. It says, if you really, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. Let's look at that phrase for a few minutes. Royal law means... That it is from a king. In this case, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Or from God himself. Therefore, like any edict from a king, it must be obeyed in its entirety. When king gives, a, you know, gives an edict, there's no, there's no negotiation. Second, 
It says it's in the scripture. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. So, so this royal law that we are talking about, it is in the scripture. Therefore, the Bible must be believed in all that it teaches and obeyed in all that it requires. That phrase I have borrowed from the EFCA statement of faith. In other words, the Bible must be our authoritative rule of life. If Bible says it, do it. We do it. And then third, notice this one. The word law is singular, not plural. That is, the apostle James speaks of God's law as if there is only one and not many. There's only one God's law, not many. You see, unfortunately, many people erroneously view the law as a series of individual commands And when they disobey one, they say, okay, I have disobeyed this particular one without realizing that they have disobeyed the whole thing. And that's the point that James is making here when he says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. In reality, the individual commandments are part and parcel of one indivisible whole. Because they reflect the will of the one lawgiver, God himself. Therefore, to violate a commandment is to disobey God, and that renders a person guilty before God. Now, let me illustrate this with some examples that I brought here. I borrowed my wife's chain this morning. Here's one of these. This is a one hole chain, if one link is broken, the whole chain is broken. That's how God's law is, God's gospel is. If one is broken, the whole thing is broken. Now here's another one. I wear these eyeglasses. Let's take one lens here. If there's a crack, In one lens, the whole lens is broken. In the same way, that's a a whole unit. God's law, the scripture, is a whole unit. And so if one is broken, the whole thing is broken. That's the point that James is trying to make here. So here's another one. Suppose a man is on trial for murder. When he goes before the court, it does not matter if he, has been, if he has been a faithful husband and father. He has never had a traffic ticket, has never robbed a bank, or has never beat up his neighbor. All that matters is, did he commit murder? If he did, he is guilty of breaking the law. You know, as I was writing this, I thought about this. You know, if I go over 70 miles per hour on a highway and I got a ticket, I have broken the law. Again, I could could be a good husband and a good father and never rob the bank and whatever else. I have broken the law. 
So in the same way, you and I may not have committed big sins like adultery and murder, but if we show partiality, we still disobey God, miss his mark, fail to hit the bullseye, and thus are rendered guilty of sin before God. That's why James says if you show partiality, you are committing a sin. Partiality is incompatible with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is a sin. Sin of dishonoring others and judging them with evil thoughts and sin of usurping the God's sovereign plans for his chosen. In so doing, we end up fighting against God's plans and purposes which we are certain to lose. You know, as I got into this subject more and more, I got terrified. I really did. So it was examination and confession throughout this week as I put the sermon together. Because sometimes we take these things very lightly and focus on these big and spectacular sins. Third, we put ourselves in danger of being judged without mercy. You see, the Bible is very clear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for everything we have done during our lives here on earth. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.10, or Jesus himself said about this in Matthew chapter 12. The Bible is very clear that we have to appear before the judgment seat of God and give account of all the things that we have done. Thoughts, speeches, actions, everything. And if not for God's mercy, the day of judgment would be a day of terror. That's what the Bible says. The day of judgment will be a day of terror. And here's the Bible verse I found. And I, as I read, read this, I got terrified. And here it is. Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 15 through 16. That day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet and battle cry. Therefore, Christians who have received mercy and are totally dependent on that mercy to save us on the day of judgment. This is not a question about salvation, okay? This is the day of judgment. But we have to give account of all the things that we have done. And to save us on the day of judgment. So if Christians, we have received mercy from God and we are totally dependent on that mercy to save us on the day of judgment... We are to show mercy to others right now. So James writes in verses 12 and 13. So speak and act. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. By the way, the law of liberty is the new covenant. It is the gospel. So it is not following every law you know, and checking off. That's not what it is. It is under Christ. And the work of, work of his work on the cross. And verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown 
no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when James says, so speak and so act, he was referring to our total conduct, both to the words that we speak and to the acts that we do. Therefore, here's how I want to challenge and conclude this message. As a Christian, next time when you see a person whom you think is not so good looking, that's your judgment. Remember, that's judgment with evil thoughts. Instead of showing partiality, speak and act with mercy. Because we want to be judged with mercy. When you see a person whom you think is a misfit for whatever reason, doesn't belong in your clique, doesn't belong in your circle of friends, whatever, in, in schools and wherever that might be, maybe due to a different race or ethnicity or skin color or, or, or age, extend a hand of mercy instead of passing judgment. Whenever you, you think you, when, when you think that you have shown partiality, knowingly or unknowingly, bring that to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. Because partiality is a sin that separates us from God. It harms us. It, it, it harms others. It le can lead to more sin. And it can eternally separate us from this loving God. So brothers and sisters... At Midland Free, we have a choice. We can choose Christian partiality, which we have seen as incompatible with Christian faith. Or we can choose to exhibit Christian mercy toward everyone that we encounter. Which one would we choose? I hope and pray that it is Christian mercy that we would choose because Christian partiality is an oxymoron. It is incongruent. It is incompatible. It is a statement of absurdity. That's the challenge from James in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, those are powerful, powerful words from your own brother, James, who wrote this book. Father, as you know that I was terrified as I was preparing this sermon because one day I need to stand before this holy God and give account to all that I have done or spoken. Father, forgive us if we have, in fact, shown partiality toward others. And thank you that Jesus went to cross and died for us for this sin as well. And so forgive us, O oh Lord, and help us to live lives that would show mercy because we have received mercy ourselves. 
And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.